You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and this is the third in a series of four podcasts recorded live at the Soho Theatre in London. This is Will Anderson. Now, Will, you will almost certainly know his name if you're uh, an Australian or probably a New Zealander as well. Uh, He's one of the biggest comics in Australia, but his profile over here in the UK is nothing like as enormous as it is back home. Uh, I hope to help him change that. He's doing a two-week run at Soho right now, so you can still catch him um, for the whole of next week at the Soho Theatre in Dean Street. Go to SohoTheatre.com for tickets. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit halfway through this chat uh, other ways that you can follow and get in touch with Will. Um, I was so pleased to have him on the the podcast, as you'll hear, uh, not least because I very nearly got the dates wrong and he very nearly thought he was booked for another date. Um, Enough from me, let's get stuck into the absolutely fantastic Will Anderson. Would you please welcome the stage the wonderful Mr. Will Anderson. Hi, dude. Great to have you, Will. Thanks very much for coming. Oh, uh, no, well, I was already here, as you know. <laughs> and, uh, well, you very nearly weren't. I should start with a, a public apology, because when I initially booked Will for the show, uh, I said the 7th of June, having told you on the podcast many times it was going to be the 2nd, uh, I booked Will for this Sunday, when I myself am going to be in Durham. Um, so, and I don't know where Will was going to be. Uh, I was, well, I was going to be here, thinking that I was doing the podcast, yeah. but... Uh, it turned out that I retweeted your plug yesterday, and I actually read it before I retweeted it, and I said, that seems to say and, that it's Tuesday. And that is unheard of, incidentally, for someone to A, retweet my plugs for the show, and B, read them, <laughs> let alone notice my crushing errors. Uh, so I did say, is it Tuesday or Sunday? And you were like, it's Tuesday. And I was like, okay, that's yeah. good. It'll be after my first show, and I may be a bit jet laggy, which I yeah. was, but that's okay. It's good. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming. Let's talk about that show. Let's talk about uh, how you feel about the show that has just happened. And let's do it in a way that makes people at home who didn't come to the show tonight really confused and jealous. Uh, Yeah, well, it it had a bit of that about it. Like, first nights... So, basically, with this show, I'll give you a little feel for... um, I started it on... uh, I write a new show every year. So, every single year for the last 20 years, I've written at least a new hour, but normally kind of 70 or 80 minutes these days if I'm going to tour a show. Um, So, I try to write a complete new show every single year. Uh, So I start that process at the Adelaide Fringe Festival. I started it this year on March the 1st and between March the 1st and April 21, I did about 80 shows of the show between the Adelaide, Brisbane and Melbourne Comedy Festivals. Um, But I was also writing a completely different show at the same time because this year in Melbourne I wrote an Australian politics show as well separately. uh, Which was just an entire show that was about Australian politics. So, So... I and did you did you dif- did you have different writing days for both shows, or did you just generate stuff and then decide which one it was going to end up in? It's, here's an interesting thing about writing: is that uh, what I've discovered about my own process is that different shows require different things. So the show tonight, Free Will, um, it's it's never had a piece written down. 
That, that show has literally all developed on stage. As I, I had one concept at the start of the show, which is the inherent thing at the moment. I had a conversation with a cab driver where he gave me a great philosophy about life being about the journey and told me why he thought that life was about the journey and not the destination. And that was literally the starting point of the show. I knew that was the only thing that I really wanted to talk about in the show. And I was like, well, how can I structure a show around the idea of journey rather than destination? And as I started talking about that, I kind of started thinking, well, maybe I could do that in a literal way. I could start talking, thinking about what happened to me on journeys this year. So like there's a couple of stories about taking cab rides or Uber rides or changing, like traveling, like, you know, to go to places. And so I just started thinking about that out of that one central you know, concept that that's where the show would come from. And then I guess the rest of the material comes out of that. So... And can I, I'm, ju- I'm just going to interrupt no, you here, which interrupt I Interrupt as much as you want. It's I your think show. I will. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I can see myself interrupting uh, uh, perpetually. You're a big talker and we'll get on to some of that in a minute. Um, but, uh, Stu's normal in this show, right? I will, uh, I will occasionally jump in. I try not Welcome to Welcome to the Comedian's Comedian with Will Anderson yeah. and Will Anderson. That's effectively what we're going for. Um, so let me just pin you down on, um, if that moment was the starting point, I'm always interested when people talk about the starting points of their show. Is it something that you got out of that cab ride and you went, hang on a minute, there's something in that and made a note? Or is it that like a month after the cab ride you found yourself thinking about it? Or what, how exactly did those ideas accrete around the, the central notion of a, a journey and that philosophy? It's funny. Um, I, I tour a show for about nine to ten months of the year. Last year it was a little bit longer than that uh, because we filmed uh, Willuminati at the Sydney Opera House on January 19. So I had finished the last night of the tour on January 19 and I needed to have a new show on March 1 and I can't be working on a new show while I'm doing the old show because I always have a theme and if you're working on new material essentially you're working on material that's thematic to the old show and not the new show so I I need to stop like so last year's show was about the idea of um uh storytelling and how much we change is like I it was based on a, a, a an incident that had happened that I've been telling for 10 years that I thought was 100% true but turns out was not true that it was a false memory and so I was talking about the concept of how much we make up as artists and how how much we are allowed to make up as artists to tell a more important truth or whatever or is it important to be I mean it's not a documentary but how much actually needs to be real whereas this show is very much about, um, you know, being in the moment and all the stories about the moment and living life in the moment, you know, even if they don't feel like they are. Like I start the show with a story about stop go- uh, that I've stopped going to the gym. But again, that whole piece is literally about not working towards something that's in the future, like, you know, mm. taking advantage of your life right now and the energy you have as a person right now. So it's almost like you've got a secret theme that you don't make explicit until the end of the show. Right. And then the pieces fall into place and we go, oh, yeah, everything was, everything was about that. Everything was coloured with that. And my attitude is also that I don't care if people don't feel like that. Like I feel like if I know it, if I know that it all makes sense then that's all that needs to be. Like, the audience actually don't need to walk away from it and know, like, go, oh, my God, he was so clever in that bit. In fact, I feel, feel like sometimes at the end where you, like, explain, and this is what it was all about. If, yeah. if that's what it was all about, then people should get it or not get it or, like, you know... Yeah, I, you, you can't really fix it at the end by making it explicit for the audience, can you? Yeah, you, right. can't, you can't have Radiohead at the end of one of their albums going, and that was a collage about regret. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. If at the end of Donnie Darko, the directory come out for 30 seconds <laughs> <laughs> and just gone, here's what I was going for, that would have been handy. But 
But yeah, no, my thing is I've never really enjoyed me spoon feeding to people what the show's meant to be about. I like it to be like, if you can imagine a piece of music where there's little, you know, things that get repeated throughout the show. So there might be a phrase or there might be an idea that there's a callback. Like not all the callbacks come at the end. Sometimes the callbacks are through the show just to kind of give it that idea that even though it seems like it's disconnected, that there are certain themes and energies that are running through this that are all, you know, kind of going towards the same yeah. place in the end. So. Yeah. Um, so Free Will grew out of that idea very organically and just on stage working it, whereas the political show, because I specifically wanted to talk about things that had happened in Australia with reference to things that people had said or points that had been made, you have to be a lot more accurate. So that whole show was written down. Like, there was not a word okay. of that show that was kind of off the top of my head. It was like, you know, specifically, our Prime Minister said this and thus I want to respond in this way or whatever. So sure. two shows concurrently written in completely different ways. So with Free Will, I, I'm really interested that none of it was written down at all because there are some structural elements to that show which, to me, suggested that you had, you had kind of at least, at the very least, put it on index cards and shuffled the order and gone, actually, that's going to that's gonna end up there. Do you know what I mean? Well, I mean, you... I'm, I mean, I do that it just in my head. Like, I mean, that's the point you hopefully get to. I, I am constantly making those assessments. Oh, and so I guess this is what I wanted to say to you originally about the idea of, so I'd done all that and then I've had a break. And so tonight was the first time I was going to do a show that for the first time that I knew was a show, you know, that I've done before, but I've had a break. Now, in that situation, you have two choices. In the old days, what I would have done is I would have listened to the tapes. I would have, like, you know, really kind of thought through the show. But I think there's something in the process of coming to something that you've learnt to know kind of a bit stale and yeah. not quite 100%, where you will discover new things about those jokes and And you'll make and better decisions in the moment. Like, one of the things I'm trying to do with the show I'm writing at the moment is I've found in, like, because I write my shows on, on, on the uh, Northern Hemisphere, it's all geared around Edinburgh being the of beginning course. and end of the year. Um, and I find, and I've talked to other comics who said this as well, that round about late September, after you've had a couple of weeks off or a couple of weeks off doing that show, maybe you've done club sets since Edinburgh, you then do the show again at a festival somewhere or at Sheffield or wherever you are, um, and you make way better decisions because you're not steeped in the process of creating the show. You actually come back to it fresh, and it all just kind of rattles into the right order, and you go, oh, that, that two minutes there and that three minutes there were entirely unnecessary and always have been. I think that it, you're absolutely right in what you've said. Like, I think Chris Rock, um, one of my favourite things about Chris Rock is when he's trying new jokes, he doesn't um, sell them. He'll go to yes. a club and he'll read the jokes off a piece of paper because his idea is that once he Chris Rocks them, he can make anything work. You know, I mean, if Chris Rocks wants I, to make something funny, he will make it funny. I love the idea that he would go, I am going to Chris Rock this. <laughs> I'm going to Chris Rock the house, ladies. I mean, uh, I like to think that he speaks like that in his real life. Yeah. <laughs> I really Chris Rock that dinner, love. High five. <laughs> Do you want to listen to some Chris Rock and Roll? <laughs> Just friends. To, to get the most out of this impression, one of us is going to then have to do an impression of Chris Rock's actual voice. It's not going to be me. No, so me, me neither, because I'm an Australian and people will think that's racist. <laughs> I, uh, um, so I, I, I think that you're absolutely right about... Like, this show will get slicker. Like, tonight I was a little edgy because it just was, like, uh, jet-laggy. I was more jumpy and nervous than I would normally be. Uh, but it also meant that the jokes had a different energy and you discover new things about the jokes. So, for example, and this is not spoiling anything for people who didn't see it, but for people who did see it, I have a routine at the start of the show about how I've never been happier, I've never been happier and I've never been healthier. And, like, the reveal is that I've stopped going to the gym, Right. 
Now, normally in that, I'm powering through that in a really healthy and happy way. But tonight, because I was jet lagged and because I wasn't feeling well, I literally halfway through my telling people I'm happy and healthy thought I was going to die. My, I, I was out of breath. My heart was pumping. I thought I was going to faint. And so suddenly I'm in a routine that is meant to be the complete opposite energy to that. Mm. Like it's meant to be me going, stop going to the gym. You're all idiots, blah, blah, blah. But in the middle of it, I'm like, maybe I should go back to the gym. And there was a lovely, you were taking surprised by a laugh because at one point you actually said something like you didn't make the joke explicit because it wasn't a joke it's not part of the show right but then there was a moment when you're like oh i'm puffed out and everyone was like well that is the perfect end of that routine right (laughs) well not just that but i was trying to open my water (laughs) and i couldn't even take the top off my water bottle and i was like if there's ever a punchline to a joke about not going to the gym is now i'm puffed on stage five minutes in and i can't take the top off a fucking water bottle (laughs) So that's not what that joke's meant to be. But that tonight, that's what that joke was. And, and some, isn't there something magical about that? That, like, despite your... It didn't matter what you thought the joke was. Right. We found, we found out what the joke was. And I think that as a comedian, as I get older, the things that are more interesting to me is not being necessarily perfect or great all the time, but giving yourself permission to get things wrong or learn new things about yourself that will make you better or great, you know? And I think that a lot of the time that's about getting comfortable with the idea that if you take a risk that sometimes those risks don't always work. But you've just got to be comfortable that that's part of your process. And if you if you go to a preview night, which is meant to be for you to take those risks and do those sort of things, and you don't, you just go out and you do your best, mm-hmm. you know, you, you go, this is my best hour and I'm just going to pump it through, then I, I kind of feel like as an artist um, you are – you are missing an opportunity to move forward. And to me, that's, I guess, what... Like, I mean, coming here even just to do these gigs at Soho, I'm here for two weeks, you know. Um, I don't have a career in the UK, and I'm not really particularly planning to have a career in the UK. Um, This is just two weeks of me, you know, working in a small room and working on my jokes and trying to get better and trying to take risks and see what people here like and don't like. And you've got to be open to the idea that there'll be stuff they don't like or that things that you think are great that don't necessarily work in this way or, you know, stylistic choices that you have to... I mean, for me, the last time I did this show was in a room that had 1,500 people in it and tonight it had 140 people in it. So even an adjustment in energy and size of the show, Mm -hmm. you know, is important. Like things that you can belt out or be angry to a your huge room about. In a small room, like there was a couple of things tonight where I was like, well, no, no, that's too much. Like it would have been better if you just like kind of gone into that a bit more gradually or, you know, you maybe can't get there unless you really take them there or, you know. So that I think even that is interesting, putting yourself in an uncomfortable situation and seeing what you can learn from that. Did you, did you find that some of the elements of the show that were more political or sociopolitical, like some of your stuff, about, I thought the, the bit about female hurricane names was terrific. One of your skills as a, as a writer or a, a maker, a creator of comedy, I think a particular skill of yours is in, uh, is in the obfuscation, is in the hiding what the point is actually going to be about. Do you mean you're really good at, and it's, I think it's a favourite thing of yours to do, of go one point, lead us down like this is what this piece is about, and then wallop the joke is about something else or something else that does actually reflect on that main point. Okay, so, yeah. And, I, and again, I don't, I don't want you, to give this away you, for people. No, who are no, you, you warned me backstage that uh, there would be a point in this podcast where I'd be about to say, look, I'm going to sound like a wanker if I tell you this, and then that, yeah, I'm that, still that, going to tell you. That's not a reflection on my expectations of Will, I should say. That's... <laughs> No, he was very nice. He said, like, they they want to hear about that stuff. Absolutely. I will... Okay, so in Australia, my intention when I started out was that I wanted to be 
a popular mainstream comedian, but I did not think that that meant that you had to be shit. That was basically, I was like, why can't I be really good like, and popular, but also talk about things that are interesting and that, I, I guess, you know that idea when people talk about preaching to the choir? Mm-hmm. I think that my show hopefully doesn't preach to the choir. I hope that my show is more like the spoonful of medicine, you know, the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down, that you come along to have a laugh and you'll hear some funny stories about me being a dickhead and blah, blah, blah. But there's a kind of underlying theme or there'll be some other things that I can talk about in that show that perhaps some people who come to the show haven't really thought about before, haven't been... I mean, I know that the most satisfying things for me is when I get, a, like, an email in Australia, for like, particularly on uh, uh, topics like marriage equality or things that I've talked about in the past. Uh, unfortunately, my country is so backwards now that literally now that Ireland has gay marriage... All the places that I tour, apart from Australia, have gay marriage and none of those jokes are worth doing anymore. So, like, Montreal's had it for over a decade. Like, that's, it's hard for me to tour those jokes. But it's interesting to me when I'll get a guy from the Australian Outback or the country or whatever who'll say, look, you know, I was always this, and, but I came and saw your shows and I would hear what you would say and after a while I was kind of like, well, that does make much more sense. And so that has certainly been my approach, has always been how can I do this in a way that is hopefully... Yeah, broad and popularly accepted, but at the same time is kind of interesting and, yeah, at least talks it. I mean, it's just me. I just talk about my opinions and what my perspective on life is and I hope to kind of present that in a, you know, in a, in a mainstream I sort th- of way. I thought that bit was particularly inspiring from the point of view of someone who writes comedy myself and yet I sometimes I feel like I'm not a, I'm not a political comic and I find that I often take, uh, I take people's opinions for granted. You know, I sort of think, well, any kind of audience that I play to, obviously they're not going to be misogynists or they're not going to... I mean, just that specific example you used of tweeting Happy International Women's Day and receiving no negative responses set against women, you know, tweeting that and receiving just a horrendous kicking on Twitter. Well, not just no negative responses, but, I mean, I don't stop down and make this point as much in the show, but the point is I tweeted Happy International Women's Day on International Women's Day and all day all I got was pats on the back. That's what it's like to be a white man. That's why men don't... That, rec- that that's observation, why, I think, is, is brilliant. That's, that, why that's, men exactly don't, right. that's why men don't get the white privilege. White men don't yeah. get white privilege. Because here's the thing. It's not your fault that you don't get it because it's hard to notice a tailwind at your back for your whole life. You don't notice it. You are still working hard. You're, I mean, it's, I'm a farm kid. My dad's a farmer. Uh, my grandfather's a farmer. My brother is a farmer. There is no doubt that this wasn't meant to be the life that I have. I've worked very hard to have this life. But... I also acknowledge that if my sister, who had been in that same situation, wanted to do what I had done, it would have been a harder journey than it has been for me. Or if my sister had been black, it would have been a harder journey than it has been for me. That doesn't, make, that doesn't mean that I'm a terrible person or that... It just means that I acknowledge that some of what has happened has been lucky or I at least acknowledge that I've had a step ahead in that sort of situation. Mm. But I've, I've not always got that either. Like, I'm 40 and I'm talking about this now. You know, I'm 41, but I, I don't want people to. <laughs> I don't want people to think I'm taking a year off my age. That is, uh, Some people saw the, the show. It's like you said, he was 41 in the show. That really is one of the privileges. There is subtracting <laughs> a year. But yeah, I, I do think that that's important to talk about. But I also am conscious of the fact that it's not my issue to talk about. So I don't want to be like, this is what feminism is, or this is what women should think. I want to talk about as a white man in a society where I'm listening and I'm hearing 
thousands of the smartest, funniest women that I follow on Twitter or Facebook or on the internet or whatever say exactly the same thing about the lives that they lead, then it, then I, well, that just must be true. Like, I mean, that's all I think. And then I think, well, when it comes to feminism, like men, white men don't need a place in feminism. White men have a place in society. We need to give a place in our society for feminism. And that's all I really wanted to do. When I say in the show, in Australia, we're constantly, it's probably not as big a thing here, but in Australia, we're constantly told that moderate Muslims should be speaking up against the violence of extremism, terrorism. And... I always think that moderate men should speak out against the terrorism that is violence against women in our society. I mean, in Australia, 52 women, one woman a week loses her life to her domestic partner. One woman a week, two people last year died of terrorism. So I think there's one of those two things that we definitely need to be talking about. So this is Will. I'm so glad that uh, we managed to pull this off. I'm so glad he spotted in time uh, with his uh, uh, hawk-like eye on Twitter that I had completely stuffed the dates up. Um, as you can hear, he's just such a lovely guy. He's so full of energy. I felt, I felt, and I'm going to blow my own trumpet here, I felt probably because Will and I had had such a great conversation about the Avengers beforehand in the dressing room, I felt really relaxed and up for it. And I, I felt like I, I played a bit of a blinder in this episode as well. So uh, perhaps you can write in and tell me only idiot who knows but um i he was just such a lovely presence he's so charming so funny and cares so passionately about stand-up and 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 i was gonna say and nothing else that's absolutely not true but he's just one of those people who lives and breathes stand-up comedy so more on that from him later um there is uh there are several ways you can follow him he has his own podcast as we mentioned tofop that's 30 odd foot of podcast t-o-f-o-p and um, you can find that on itunes or wherever you find your podcasts and you can also find willosophy with will anderson um you can go to his website which is willanderson.com.au because he is special and australian and remember all the time he is spelling will with one l so it's willanderson.com.au with one l you can follow him on twitter as well at will with one l underscore anderson so get in touch with will connect with him and just i mean you go and see him live if you can make it to london in the next week do go and see that show i saw his stuff on youtube i've seen a couple of his dvds um but none of them were were None of them prepared me for just how great he is in the room, and especially a small room like Soho. When this guy's playing the Sydney Opera House, I just feel so lucky to be able to see him in in that downstairs room at Soho. Um, A little bit of uh, advertising now for some other bits and bobs. Of course, we've got the Buxton show coming up. That's the final Soho Theatre show on the 7th of July with Adam Buxton, uh, Dr. Buckles, Count Buckley's, uh, one half of the Adam and Joe podcast that was the first podcast I ever heard and probably the first one you heard as well way back in the day. So thrilled to have Adam on the show. He's just a relentless generator of musical and visual and comic book and cartoon comedy. Uh, and a very, very funny stand-up, a character stand-up in his own right as well. Remember, go to SohoTheatre.com and use the discount code FAF to get 20, 25% off the tickets. I think they're a tenner. You can get a ticket for £7.50 if you use that code FAF, F-A-F-F. That's for SohoTheatre.com, and that's the 7th of July to see Adam Buxton at 9.30pm. And if you're going to come to Soho, Adam isn't actually doing a run like uh, like Will was. Um, but uh, not at the moment, at least, but uh, make a night of it. You can totally get to Soho in time to see a 7 or a 7.30pm show, then have time to grab a drink and then come and see me interview Adam. So have a bash at that. 
Um, if you're complaining that I never go up north, then come and see me at the fifth on the fifth of July at the Darlington Comedy Festival. I'm doing a preview that night. So is the brilliant comic Deliso Chaponda, and then I'm well before, in fact, before our previews, I'm going to be interviewing Deliso. So get your information from DarlingtonComedyFestival.co.uk. Deliso is just great. He's one of those guys. It'll be a really different interview with Deliso. He's one of those guys who has, and I've seen it. He literally has uh, an Orny Adams style ring binder with all of his jokes, how long they take in seconds, whether they're blue or not, which audience are the most appropriate for. He is just uh, an incredible kind of powerhouse of uh, analysis and practice. He's like he's a bit like Stephen Grant, I guess, in that way that he's just very, very analytical. And I'm really looking forward to talking to him. I also happen to know that he was on the, the Great Jonglers list several years ago, uh, where there was a big list of the feedback forms. Someone told me, a little birdie told me, that he was number one on those forms, possibly because of the analytical approach that uh, I've already mentioned. So, darlingtoncomedyfestival.co.uk for the 5th of July. That's for anyone complaining that I never venture up north. I will do more soon. I'm going to do a little podcast junket in uh, in Manchester, I should probably tell you, I'm going to be at Excess Malarkey on the 2nd of July. So um, I'm going to do a, a preview that night. Uh, me and John Luke Roberts, absolutely brilliant. I think going by Luke Roberts these days, who knows, but very, very funny comic. I'll get him on before long as well. Um, and during the day, I'm going to do a couple of uh, Manchester podcasts just to try and get some lovely people on the show. I never mean it to be London-centric, but obviously I live here. Lots of internationals come here. Um, so I will make more of an effort in future. So 3rd of July at Excess Malarkey, 5th of July uh, with Deliso at the Darlington Comedy Festival. Now that's all of that stuff. Um, the Fringe programme has just launched, so you can come and see my show, 4.55pm every night in the Cannons Gate on PBH's Free Fringe, um, and that is going to be all the way through the the. F- Edinburgh Fringe Festival um, and at Black Medicine every night at 11pm for the last two weeks of the festival I'm going to be uh, well shall I just tell you who I've got so far I think I can tell you this is sort of exclusive um, let me see where's the fire here we go these people are currently confirmed and there's a couple of other people on a pencil but the confirmed ones are Ashling B, Stuart Francis, Daniel Sloss, Jason Byrne, Joel Domit and Ronnie Cheng are all confirmed for the run. Come and see some of those. That's free as well. And I will also attempt to blag donations from you and indeed merch. I've got some exciting merch coming up. Um, more on that later. Uh, so thank you. Yeah, if you'd like to donate to the show and if you have already, thank you so much for doing that. Um, there's been a bit of a spurt recently, which has been much appreciated, particularly as I work out plans to get myself to L.A. Podfest. Um, also, Mike Sheldon. I've got to mention Mike. Mike Sheldon is a, a sort of what could I call him? A small time philanthropist. He's donated a, a sizable sum of money to the podcast. Um uh, with a sort of podcast bursary scheme in his own kind of micro philanthropy kind of way. I say micro, obviously, you know, it's it's not billions, but it's a fairly impressive chunk. And that's going to help me get to the L.A. Podcast Festival. So thank you, Mike Sheldon. It's much appreciated. And he's got quite a good system whereby he he nominates one person per year this year, me. Um, and they get a chunk of money and then I nominate two further shows who then get smaller chunks of money as well. And it's just a really great thing to do. So if you would like to be like Mike Sheldon um, and support uh, the arts in the form of this podcast and its ongoing inquiry into the deepest, darkest recesses of 
their comedian's mind and indeed their uh, social life and how mental they are, then you can donate using the PayPal button at comedianscomedian.com or go to patreon.com forward slash comcompod uh, or you can see me at a gig, press some cash into my hand and say something cool. There's been a couple of uh, nice ones recently, much appreciated, um, and some nice little nods and winks and shuffles and stuff like that. Uh, that's always good. But your donations, as ever, your donations uh, mean that I can afford to make the show Immediately that I can afford to make the show that I can spend all this time. I've been telling everyone this week, this podcast is like polyfiller. It's like, no, I don't mean polyfiller. I mean that expanding foam that you inject into your into your wall cavities. It's like I've injected that into my diary and it's filling all the available gaps. So thank you for helping me, uh, helping me be able to turn down smaller gigs. Should I be even doing this? But turn down some work in order to go and do the live shows, in order to go and do... Uh, kind of more research in order to to travel to see more people um, and buy tickets for shows and buy better equipment and all that stuff that's all because of you and I really really appreciate it so thank you very much for those donations let's get right back into the brilliant Will Anderson when you're when you are on stage, and I want to sort of broaden this out to, to, to engage more with your persona as a comic. Who do you feel that you are to the audience? Do you feel like you're a friend to them or a brother to them or an uncle to them? What, what is the nature of your relationship? Uh, you know what? I've never really thought about it like that. I've got to be honest with you. I, um, I assume it's different for everybody. I always, I always like to think it, it's like um, you don't, not every audience member has to get the same thing out of it. That's what I think. You know, I make it. I make it and I think this is what I think it is. But once you put it out into the world, my favourite Radiohead lyric is um, it, it, there's a line in, uh, it's, um, in Karma Police and it's, uh, it says, for a minute there I lost myself. It's my favourite line ever. I love that line, so, but it means so many different things to me. Barry Humphreys, who's Dame Edna Everidge, mm-hmm. the great Australian comedian, uh, they asked him about wa- what's it like to walk out on stage in front of 3,000 people and he said, oh, alone at last. And, <laughs> you know, there's, there's part of me that definitely thinks that in that Radiohead song. In a, for a minute there I lost myself. The greatest moment of all time is that moment when you're in the joke, when you're in the moment where you're connecting with an audience. But at the same time, I also think that line might be, for a minute there, I lost myself, which is that moment in society where we're pretending to be, particularly as performers, we so often are pretending to be someone cooler. Or yeah. More, you yeah. Know, I'm like, so I want to be Bill Hicks or Stuart Lee or whatever. Yeah. Whereas what so for a minute there, you lost your contrived self. Right. Is that what you mean? Okay. And so, but who knows what, I don't know what Tom York was thinking when he came up with that lyric. It doesn't really matter. It means a bunch of things to me. And they are all legitimate to me. So whatever people get out of my comedy, like be it good, bad or indifferent, that's – I kind of make it. I make what I make and then it's up to people what they get out of that. So I don't really think about that too much. And at, at what point in, in your comedy career, given that you've got 20 years worth of, of hour-long shows, 20 years worth of constantly creating stuff, at what point did you bring, it, bring yourself to it like that? Or what, was that a revelation? Was that something you started off thinking, I'm just going to make it and that's what it is? Or is that something that you had to learn along the way? Oh, I mean, I, I learned it late. I mean, I have been doing, uh, I reckon, seven years. Seven years, I would say, is like when I really kind of felt like I was starting to find my voice and I was starting to really get it. So about seven years, last seven years. So the first 13, I was just flailing about wildly like everybody else does and I didn't know what... I was 
meant to be doing and, you know, uh, as a comedian, I didn't really know how comedy worked and, you know, there was no one really to tell us then. You couldn't listen to podcasts or, you know, you used to have to just, like, sit up the back of a comedy room and hope that, like, you could overhear, like, a more experienced comedian say something. So um, it took me a long time to work out exactly what it was that I wanted to do and luckily enough people kind of stuck with me through that time that when I kind of started to work it out, there was still an audience there for me. When you when you say talking about your voice, that's so uh, finding your voice. That's a, an expression comics are uh, very fond of as a way of kind of analyzing. <laughs> so for the benefit of visual uh, jokes are great for, for the benefit podcast. of those at home, Will is still having trouble opening that bottle. Um, incredible when you give when you take into account the size of your right bicep, which is <laughs> beautiful. But spoilers. Um, so uh, I, I was going to say yeah. So there's this means of kind of uh, critically analyzing exactly what it is that sets one comic apart from another, you might say that person's found their voice and that person hasn't. So what were, just to look at that in more detail, what were the differences in, in, a, in a show, in a set, say, between you eight years ago and you seven years ago? Or between you, I mean, we don't need to pick those, those no, numbers. No, I know or what you meant. You when you found your voice and you when you hadn't. Um, I realised I didn't want anyone to have a bad time. That was basically it. I realised... That who I am, I think that I've spent a lot of my time going, I'm not very interesting. You know, like I'm white, my parents are still together. Like there's no good comedy background stories. Like sometimes I look at them and go, you couldn't have locked me in a cupboard for a week. Like I've written 20 shows without you fucking touching me once. Like, (laughs) Or dying. (laughs) I could have won awards if you'd done something. I, uh, but I kind of, I got to a point where I was like, well, maybe that's, be happy to be you. I am a dag and I am mostly happy and I do love hearing what people think about life and I, I do think that life is mostly positive. And I, I, here's a good example. So the piece I was doing in the show tonight about religion is so different to the piece I would have done about religion eight years ago. Eight years ago it would have been like, you believe in God and you're a fucking idiot and here's reasons why God doesn't exist and, you know, look at me, I'm edgy, I'm going to turn this seat around and, you know, <laughs> smoke a cigarette and shit. But that's not me. That was just me pretending to be someone much cooler than I actually am. I'm a guy who's like, well, I don't believe in God because it makes absolutely no sense, but also life makes absolutely no sense. So until someone has an actual description, I'm happy for you to believe whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, which is much more the opinion that I go, like, that's how I talk about religion now, which is like, I don't believe it, but, you know, here's some interesting things about it and here's some things I can talk about that are interesting. So that would be a practical demonstration. Yes. So, so what you're saying is almost like the, the idea of finding your voice isn't something out there that you need to, to go, out, go out on a quest to find. It's more a case of, like, removing the obstacles that you're putting in your own way. Oh, Just accepting that that you are what you are. And And then Michelangelo talked about the idea of the sculpture already being inside the rock, but you just have to work out which bits that you have to get rid of so that you're left with what you want. And I think that's very much like, A, creating a persona, but also, well, not creating persona, but like letting your persona come through, which is getting rid of all that shit where you're pretending to be other people. You know, I mean, we all do it. We, I mean, don't get me wrong. We all want to be Stuart Lee. We all want to be Daniel Kitson. We all want to be fucking Bill Hicks or whoever these George Carlin or Louis C.K. Mm. or whoever these people are. And I love all those guys, you know, but I'm not those guys. I'm this other person, you know, and I've got to talk about things in the way that I'm going to talk about things. And yet you still, I suppose there is pressure on you from an industry point of view or pressure on one, on a comic, to have a distinctive voice. 
And so it's quite a, that's quite a paradox, isn't it, for a newer comic to be thinking, oh, I'm told I'm not dis- distinctive enough, and yet I am just trying to be me and say and just be as funny as I would be to my to an audience of my friends. I guess the the thing that I would say about that is that Louis's not a copy of anybody, and Bill Burr's not a copy of anybody, and Carlin wasn't a copy of any. You know, all those people were the first of what they were doing. And that's the thing we've got to remember. You don't ever break through being a copy of somebody else. You break through because you have something different or original to offer. But we spend so much time, I guess, afraid that we're funny. I guess that's the big thing is fear. I mean, particularly for me, I was a farm kid. So I just spent, like, my whole life. The first person I met in show business was me. Like, you know, I, there wasn't a comedy industry. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, there wasn't a comedy industry in Australia when I started doing it. It's grown up in the time that I've been doing it. There was comedians making a living, but the idea that you would be a comedian who would go on and do television or radio or any of those things, that pretty much happened as I've had a career and grown what, up. What, what, so, do you think, what do you think would have been different if you, uh, as the farm kid, were to start now in 2015 in an Australia that already has a comedy industry? I'm not sure I would have. Because when I started, it was running away to join the circus. Like, when I started, it was like, you know, a bunch of young artists in s- silly little rooms doing silly little shows for no other reason than the fact that you, were, you thought you were young artists doing silly little shows. And that's still the spirit that I have, like, through it. That's still, to me, what I love. People always ask when they're like, um, you know, when you're touring, like, places where you play smaller crowds or whatever, what's it like going back to... It's like, I never stopped playing those rooms. They're still the most fun rooms. That I did Old Rope last night. You know that gig, the you know where they do new comedy at the Phoenix, mm-hmm. and that's as much fun as any night. You know, you get to, you get to go down there and watch like Ed Byrne and you know people like that just trying new material. Glenn Wool and Tiffany Stevenson. That's comedy to me. Sitting up the back with my mates, having a beer, watching people try new ideas, or come to that moment where they have something great. That to me was always what it was about. This idea now that. Here's what I think would be different. Like, I have a certain look or whatever. You get very funnelled into a mainstream thing these days. I've seen it with younger guys. You know, you kind of like, oh, you could host something or you can be a radio guy. So they get rid of all the edges and all the interesting stuff and they make you this kind of mainstream person. I don't know if I would have had the self-confidence or, um, you know... You're like a nice-looking man. You'd have been... I just would have gone, oh, great, you can present this thing. And I probably just would have done it. And I never would have understood that that's not exactly what I wanted to do. So I'm glad that I didn't. I think I came through at the perfect time. It was that perfect time where you started with no expectations and then an industry grew around you, which meant that you could have a great life and have to do nothing else. But... It started with no expectations. I never went into it thinking anything would happen. And I think that's been probably the greatest thing that happened to me. We were talking just before we came out, we were having a very excitable conversation about the Avengers. We were. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, it strikes Pretty me Pretty cool as... guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm like Carlin and Bill Hicks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just, th- just realised I think I might be a dag. <laughs> We were, but it's a, it's a favourite topic of mine to, to, to sort of to look at comedy through the, through the lens of being a superhero. Because it seems not just um, in the way that, uh, that audience members might look at it and go, oh, well, that's a special thing. But that element of like you and, you know, this is alone at last or whatever it is, that moment of just being in complete flow and complete control of yourself, just flying effectively, uh, to, to crank a metaphor. Um, but I wondered if you... What do you think are your superpowers in the world of comedy? What is it that you particularly have that the, the, the other comics might not? And, I'm, and I will also be asking you about your, your super weakness as well. So don't, um, don't feel that you can't first blow your own trumpet. Well, I mean, I think, like, I mean, tonight wasn't necessarily representative of this. Um, 
But I think in general, somebody once said to me that they said you can just essentially bully anyone into liking you. And <laughs> there is a certain sort of like relentless force of energy that I have that kind of... Uh, there is one show that I'm particularly good at, a show called Set List, which is an improvised stand-up comedy show. And mostly because I'm just happy to like talk. I assume I have an opinion about everything. <laughs> and if I open my mouth, it will just come out and then I will justify it. And that's my favourite moments when you're creating on stage. You know, in that moment of genuine, like, here we go. Okay, we're on a riff now and we're actually building say, this Say thing. something. Say, it's like almost a thesis. Just say a thing. Just and say then, a thing and, and then, then justify it. it. Yeah. It's my favourite thing to do. In fact, it teaches you a lot about comedy, which is often the best stuff comes from the just take a leap and then just go, all right, now I'm going to justify that thing yeah. comedically. So I guess that's probably... That's, that's quite a mature uh, version of that premise as well. I think we've probably all seen newer comics say a thing and then not justify it. Right. Do you know what I mean? Because like, that's one of the hardest things to do is something that Bill Burr is brilliant at, is saying something awful and then taking you on a line of logic through which you can understand where he's coming from and see the, the way it's that he's I mean, it's absolutely true. I, Bill's a great example. So the two things about Bill Burr... Um, like, I gig a little bit with Bill, and he's a wonderfully sharing wise man backstage, which I always think is wonderfully generous of a guy of his stature. And he told me something that I use a lot in my shows, which is, he said, if you're going to a party, uh, something funny just happened. Say I have that cab drive, mm -hmm. like with that cab driver that I won't talk about, and I'm going to go and meet you afterwards for a beer. I don't, before I meet you, sit out in, like, the street for five minutes and go, I'll tell him this bit first, and then I'll do this bit. I trust that I'm funny and I have a funny story to tell you and that I will respond to you and I will look at your face and I will hear how you're laughing and if you're more interested in what the guy looked like or how he sounded or where we were going, then I will do more on that because... Comedy is about – it's more – I like to think of the relationship with the audience and I do think it's genuinely about you and the audience. Uh, I like to think of it like surfing, right? You can be a great surfer, but you've got to surf the – Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Pipes that are there that day, and you've got to... So you've got to be in tune with the audience. So that would be the first thing that I would say that he taught me, which is like to listen and try to just tell the stories. Don't write, you know, don't necessarily write them down, but tell those stories. And what was the second? Why was that? Why did we bring this up? Uh... Sometimes I get distracted by my aside. No, no, no. We were talking. We were initially talking about your your superpowers, bullying oh, people into Bill liking Burr. you. There was a um, Bill Burr thing that I you really said wanted that, to. You said there were two points about Bill Burr. Yeah, right? and I, I don't told know you what one. The second one was. <laughs> And the second yeah, but, one but is I, a mystery. I can't, I can't remind you what the thing is that you were going to say, sadly. That is not one of my superpowers. I know, but you brought good. it up and I thought you might know. Anyone in the audience got any idea how that started? We were talking, we were talking specifically about... Oh, Bill Burt. Thank you. So, I'm taking that. 85% uh, of the things that Bill Burr says on stage, I find as a general statement, completely the opposite of what I believe as a human being. Sure one of my favourite comedians in the entire world. This bullshit idea that you have to agree with somebody to enjoy their comedy is 
completely irrational. But also, what Bill does and what Louis does, Louis can have you and with you, like Louis can be jumping out the window with his children in his arms to murder them. And that's a thing that obviously as a human being I would never ever do and I find objectionable. But he tells it in a way But that by the time you get there, you're like, I'm fucking jumping too, let's jump. (laughs) And that's what I think you can do. Whatever you want to talk about, you just have to... Like, oh, well, this is how I'm going to tell this story. You know, this is how I want to talk about this, you know, how I will structure it. It's not a documentary. You can choose whichever bits you want to make your story work. I mean, life is all that. I mean, we have this idea that life is one version of our life. But for every story, every story is like an old... It's like the old days where we would take a photo. You'd take a photo and it would be on your fridge and that would be your memory of that night. Remember the late night? We're all out in the thing and that's what you remember. And as the years go on, that becomes your memory of that night. Whereas these days we take every photo and you can just watch them and it's a documentary. But there is no such thing as a, a, a whole truth. It's all storytelling. Our entire lives are storytelling. The amount of lies we tell to ourselves every day about who we are and what we are and what we actually... Yeah, I mean, even breaking down those things, like the difference between how you behave, I mean, to quote Batman, uh, it's not who you are inside, it's what you do that defines you. And I think that... <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> sh- we, Shut up, pricks, I'm loving this. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, so I think that there's... I mean, anyway, that was... I guess the point I was trying to make was that you don't need to agree with somebody. It's about you... Actually, as you were saying, how you construct that idea and argue it through. Yes, yes. So when you're, when you're getting in... Are there things you can do to get yourself in that flow? Like, because we, to use that Bill Burr example of the conversation that you'd have with a friend you don't prepare for, but sometimes if you're conversing with someone you don't know, like an audience, you might kind of falter and go, oh, God, this isn't going very well. I'm not flowing right. And if you're someone, if you're the type of comic that hasn't relied on planning the stuff and writing the jokes and making them lean and getting the words in the right order, what kind of things can you do on stage to jumpstart yourself into flowing? Uh, Look, there was a couple of times tonight where I had to do that. Like where I did get to the end of a thing and it kind of didn't like flow naturally into the next thing. And the first thing is to remember not to panic. Like, you know, to remember that moment that for you, that 15 seconds feels like 15 minutes, but for everybody else, they barely noticed that it happened. That's the first thing. I think there are some comedians who don't like to watch comedy, but I love to watch comedy because one of the things, A, I love comedy, so I like to watch it, but B... It's nice to be in an audience because it reminds you that you don't have to be laughing every 15 seconds. You can be really enjoying a show and be going, well, I'll, you know, I'll laugh here and there and whatever, but it doesn't mean I'm not engaged if I'm not like, you know, laughing outrageously and, and I should every just, minute. Just to interrupt, I think that's, that's a, a, an element of being in an audience that is not the same when you're being a comic at the back of the room, just kind of chatting, being on Facebook on your phone and just occasionally looking up and going, ha, you know, there's, is there something about being in an audience, in, you know, like in the middle of an audience and giving a show your whole attention? That I, like to I don't feel I do enough. I love to do it. I like to go and see comedy alone, like all the time. Like uh, I actually saw Todd Barry in this very venue that we're in uh, a couple of years ago when I was in town doing shows and I just came and sat in the corner and watched him and it was one of the most like amazing nights I've ever had. And it wasn't even a great – and this is the best thing that reminds you, Todd wasn't having a great night. You know, it was like one of those nights where I could tell he would have, like, walked off stage and gone, that was a shitty show. But to me, it was literally one of the most delightful... I was loving it. 
Like the audience, <laughs> nothing like, sweeter than seeing Todd fail. I know that's not what you mean. <laughs> no. no, I mean he was having a good night. Like it wasn't a bad night. I'm just saying it was like one of those nights where I bet he walked off later and just went, "Well, I've had better nights and whatever. Sure. Fuck that crowd tonight." But to me, as that person in the crowd who was loving it, I didn't care how everybody else was, and I think that's important to remember. Like I think that in the old days, if you were having a shitty show or if there was a moment where something didn't work, like. There's a real temptation to blame the audience or to turn on them or whatever. And then what you end up doing is not only alienating the people who weren't enjoying themselves, but you start alienating the people who were like, oh, no, 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 we're having a really great time. Why is he now so angry at us? And it took me a long time to go, just accept that you're not always going to fucking nail it and be awesome and accept that, like, people will still enjoy – like, you know what it's like as a comedian. There's nothing worse than one of those nights where you don't feel like you've done a great show and then people come up to you and want to tell you how great it was. And it's like, because you don't want to be an asshole. You don't want to be like, oh, no, it didn't really work because of this and this and that. Because yeah. shut but the it's fuck so, up. It's so right? hard to go, uh, yeah, thanks. That really was representative of my best work. That's, you know, it's so hard. But I agree. I agree. The, the alternative is worse. Right. And no, but you, exactly what you're saying. Like, that's all I want to say. I, like, even when we went tonight, you came backstage, you were like, good show. And I literally wanted to go, okay, well, here's the things that were wrong with the show. <laughs> and, but, I, but I think that you've got to get better at that. You've just got to get better at going, well, this is who I am. And if I don't accept, like, my faults and if I don't, I can't learn from them. And if I'm just going to live in this world where I either can be great or I run away and hide, then, well, that's just a stupid way to live your life. So I try to, like, you know confront that a little bit more and like learn from my audience a little bit more and you know sort of try to grow and let them push me a little bit more so um jeopardy i wanted to talk about Uh it's kind of a weasel word but um when we talk about uh, like the 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 way that the, the world in which your stories work, the world that they inhabit. And I noticed particularly tonight that you have, um, you've got a really good ability to, a really good ability, well written to you, um, to, uh, to make something happen at the limits of your experience. So you're often like in a, like in, if I were to see someone less practiced than you, you would sort of go, you, you might see someone going, oh, this was the best thing that ever happened. This was the most X thing that ever happened. That's almost become a, right. a habit of contemporary uh-huh. comedy. And then this guy said to me the most amazing thing. But you, you, you do it, I think, in the right way, in that you push the, the drama of what's going on to the limit of your experience. Well, also, um, I mean... This... <laughs> it was a very pretentious sentence. But no, no. I, thank, no you, thank you for not picking me up on that. No, I, but I actually appreciate that because that is literally what I'm trying to do. Like, so I think the story in particular you're talking about, there's a story about me being on a plane with a particular celebrity, mm-hmm. and um, which is an absolutely 100% true story, which is rare in comedy, that, like, you know, a story can I, be... I noticed that you didn't say this genuinely happened yeah. before it, so I thought, oh, maybe this happened. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is pretty much the sign, isn't it? Um, it? It was one of those moments where, which is very rare for me, where I knew from the minute that it started that I would talk about this thing. So I've yes. sat down across from this guy that is I'm like he's one of my heroes. So and I have a podcast so at the very least I knew from the minute I saw this guy that I've talked about on my podcast before that this is going to be a story, which is rare. Normally you only know afterwards that the thing is going to be a story. But from that moment I was like, okay, well this is the story. Now Part of what I like to do on the way is if I know that I'm going to somewhere, then the rest of it, the internal of the story, will essentially be 
self-deprecating. And uh, basically the way the show works is it's punctuated by a few moments of triumph, but most of it's kind of undercutting and self-deprecation on the way to the triumph. And that gives me a kind of nice format to be able to kind of go, at the end of the day, I think that I can make fun of anyone as long as 85% of the time I'm the dickhead at the end of the story. And I think that's probably representative of most of my work. It's in a context that... Don't worry, the butt of this joke is eventually going to be me, right? And so in that story in particular, it has this like very strong payoff that was there from the moment it happened. Literally the moment that thing happened, I was like, well, I know this is going to be That's funny because a story. Given right? that it was a true story, I, the, the one question I wanted to ask about that bit, and this is just going to make you grind your teeth if you, haven't, uh, if you don't know the details, but uh, you can see Will here for the next two weeks at Soho Theatre. Um, but the very ending, that perfect, perfect ending, I thought, oh, he's got to have tagged that on. Do you know well, what I mean? That, that's... That's great, but it's it the complete opposite. Yeah, it's it's very much that idea of like you know if you're writing a movie, they say if you've got problems in the third act, all the problems are in the first act. Like you you fix your third act by getting your first act right, and it's the same with like the structure of a joke. I knew how it ended. I just had to do enough distraction and mm. enough other business in the middle that yes. they forget that we're on a plane. If I suddenly go with who he is and we're on a plane and a yep. thing happens and I get to that. Well, that is too convenient. Yes, that of course. Is, yes, like, yes, That absolutely. is a very naff way. You're like, oh, well, yeah, that's a joke. But this is a true story. Weirdly enough, because it's such a good true story, you have to do more work on making sure that people realise it's a true story because it's almost too perfect, like you yes. said. So a lot of that middle stuff, all the weird stuff that I do in the middle mm-hmm. when I talk about my experience, that's just to ground it in a reality of like this is how – this happened. And there was other things that happened on the flight, obviously, sure. but um, that's enough to kind of tell the story okay. and kind of distract okay. it a bit and because I know where I'm going. So I just want everything to eventually get there, but I don't want people to work it out before I get there. To, to, uh, I, I know everyone that's seen this now is feeling unbearably smug that we know what we're talking about, so I'll, I'll, I'll try and make this a bit more kind of uh, legible for everyone else. Um, I, but I do. I am fascinated by that idea that this is, as you say, almost uniquely amongst your experience. A thing starts to happen. You think I'm going to talk about this on stage, and then presumably you've got options, life options, as to oh, maybe I'll try flicking this guy on the ear. Do you know what I mean? And just see what happens because anything I do now well, can fit into. So that's inter- like it's interesting, isn't it? It's like um, the Star Trek. Uh, what's the Star Trek convention? Yeah, the prime directive that you're not meant to... I mean, he didn't even finish that sentence, but that is some phenomenal trekking. (laughs) Uh, We've got someone in from Trekopedia tonight, so... (laughs) But yeah, the prime directive that you're not meant to, like, affect anything else, right? So for me, I don't want to be an active participant in this comedy. Of course. Right, you know what I mean? Like... And But I did watch him. Like, the, that whole bit about me watching him at the start is uh, absolutely 100% true. Like, I just watched him because I wanted to see what he was doing. I wanted to see if there would be anything interesting. And I wanted to talk to him because he's a person that I just wanted to talk to. So I was looking for an opportunity to talk to him, but I didn't get an opportunity to talk to him. But I, So from the minute it happened, I was hoping that something in that story would happen. I never would have imagined it was going to end up where it ended up. But, uh, yeah, there was certainly... Uh, when I was watching uh, that, uh, again, this is way too metaphorical, but <laughs> there's, a part, there's a part in the story where I was doing something early on. Um, that's what I thought maybe the story would be at that point. Okay, you know? yes, I, I see so what you at mean. That point, I feel we should, we should pull back from this now because yeah, this will be... It's hard for people to understand. Yeah. <laughs> I, 
oh, no, I can tell them this. There's someone sitting across from me and I'm watching that person on a DVD on my computer while watching that person across from me, right? Yeah. That could have been the story. If that's all that had happened, I could have found a way to tell that story where that bit of it was the important bit, where that bit of it was the punchline. Yeah. Just turned out that something else happened. So what are, just to, to finish this inquiry from 10 minutes ago or so, what are, your com- what are your weaknesses in comedy? What are your, if your superpowers are this kind of irrepressible, what was that? Sorry? Answering questions. Answering questions, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Boom. Um, so if, if, if these... I could answer questions directly, I wouldn't be able to do a new show every year. <laughs> <laughs> if I could get to the point, I would have done two shows in the last 20 years. Uh, well, I mean... So we've got this irrepressible kind of nature, this, this, the, the ability to say a premise and then work your way around to it. What things do you find frustrating to you that you go, I wish I could just do a bit more like that? Um, I wish I could replicate performance better. Um, every night is different for me. Like every single night. Would that mo- be? That sounds like a positive. That Mostly, it's a positive. But there are times where you would just like to be able to go out and like tell a joke. You know, like this is how it goes, and this is the comfort if I hit this beat, and if I hit this beat. Particularly if it hasn't been a problem in Australia because people have kind of grown up with me a bit. But going overseas, trying to like you know, in most of the spots you tend to get like you know, if you go into a Montreal or an America or whatever, it's like yeah, and it's like yeah. four minutes or five minutes, and you like go out and like press. That's not really my forte. I can't answer one simple fucking question in that amount of time. So, like, my... Can you please draw us a mind map of all of the 30 thoughts you're going to have? Yeah. Yeah. So, definitely that. Like, being able to be concise and to the point and kind of being able to put together, like, a easily... Like, if you came and saw me on Thursday night to say, hey, you're going to do this set on Conan, like, to be able to do it... I mean, tonight, even in the show, I've walked out on stage. I'm doing the first joke of the show. Like, the first joke of the show, this is the line. I've never been happier and healthier in my life, and I owe it all to... First line! And someone says something. Yeah. Like, there! That is not the first... Like, that's... I barely fucking started the show. I pause for effect, and someone fills in the fucking pause. And I do five minutes. Yeah, absolutely. You're the, oh, that reminds me of a time yeah. someone said this, and here we are, and then there's thought about. And then eight and, minutes later, I'm yeah. starting the show again. You know, and yeah. it's so. I guess for me, that's both the uh, strength, but also it has been a weakness because, like, what ideally sometimes in our industry you need to be able to do is able to replicate things in a moment and just go, "This is how I do this, and this is my set." Sure. I, I don't know whether it's because of the, uh, the, the specific times that I've seen you. I saw you um, at the sit-down comedy club in uh, Brisbane with Lindsay Webb, who <laughs> featured had a small cameo role in the show tonight. Um, and the pair of you were hammered and doing yes. an improvised kind yes. of, you know, hanging out sort of a show. Very, very funny. It was a late-night show after. I was doing a run of shows in Brisbane, but we just yes. decided that at midnight we would go down to the sit-down comedy club and get drunk and answer audience questions or Absolutely. something. And it was great fun. And I will never forget you spilling your drink over and over again and Lindsay leaning in and going, you don't like that top bit, do you? <laughs> Beautiful. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I think because I've seen you in that thing and I, in, in that context, that was the first time I saw you live. And also because I know that you've, you've talked uh, before, I've kind of been looking up different sort of interviews you've done um, about using uh, medical marijuana for your osteoarthritis. Osteoporosis? Osteoarthritis. Uh-huh. Arthritis. Yeah. Arthritis. Um, I suppose that I have this view of you as kind of a, kind of a lush. Do you know, what do does you, that is, mean? Is that, uh, <laughs> I don't like, really, I don't know if that word you, you translates. Go, you go quite hard. You're a bit of a caner. 
Uh, Neither of those really explain it if you don't know what those expressions are. You just said other words I don't understand. Like you're a bit of a... a, You're a blunderbuss. You're a table chair. (laughs) You're a black, white, red Marjorie. I would have described you as one of my recreational friends. You're a curtain pants. (laughs) (laughs) You like a drink. Oh, yeah, no, I like a drink. Do you take recreational drugs? I do, yeah. I've I've got no pot because it's illegal here, but... If anyone has any, I'd love some. <laughs> I, uh... And please, please do not send it into the podcast. No, please don't. Send it to me at the venue, Soho Theatre, next two weeks. And so what I was going to ask was, given that that's... And I know that, you know, a lot of comedians have had... Like, I, I find comedians are often either teetotal or alcoholic. Uh-huh. Do you know what I mean? Like, people go through this environment, this, this lifestyle, whereby you're constantly given free drinks. Your, your Monday morning in the office is everyone else's Friday night out. And I just wondered, and I don't mean to sort of tie you with this unnecessarily if it's not part of your lifestyle, but I, I do, I wondered whether your lifestyle in that regard has, uh, has been a hindrance to your career or ambitions or whether it's been a positive thing. But given that your, your kind of the nature, your, the way that you talk to people is very kind of relaxed and exuberant and like a guy being funny at a party. Um... Did I get away with that question? I don't know if I did. No, no, that's, I mean, that's a legitimate question. Uh, I would say that generally it probably doesn't have that much effect on my work. It's probably like when earlier on when I talked to you about the idea of when I started doing comedy, what I loved about doing comedy, I still love those same things now. So like you said, that I, I will be drunk at a show with Lindsay Webb at midnight that wasn't meant to be on at a stand-up comedy club that is on for that purpose mm-hmm. because that's an event. That's why people have come out. They've come out to see you be drunk and sure. drop drinks and you know, all that sort of stuff. But if I came out tonight in my show and did that exact same thing, that's not what people are there for no, in no, that situation. Absolutely. And so I've kind of – I think it's mostly been positive, like, you know, as in, like, cre- creatively. I don't necessarily use drugs in a creative way other than weed. Like, I do like to do shows on – like, I think weed's a good drug for shows for me. Because, like, tonight, for example, where I didn't have pot, like, I was jittery. And, like, part of it was jet lag, but part of it's just a little bit, like, I'm a little bit high energy. And, like, just having that idea that I just can breathe a little and ease out is, is, is positive for me. But I've never been, like, a... Like a um, I don't like uppers at all, like, in a performance sense. Like, I just don't feel like that's any... Like, I mean, I'm pretty high energy already. <laughs> you don't need to add anything. That is a long conversation in a bathroom. Right, yeah. you, isn't it? <laughs> This show's going to go for 33 hours. Fuck you, Mark Watson. I, and I only am, I'm going to talk myself. I'm not going to get anyone else involved. Um, yeah, I mean, psychedelics in the regard to opening my mind a little bit. Certainly, this show was a little inspired. So here's what I'd like to do a little bit with the shows. They're, they're often metaphorical, uh, even though it doesn't matter to anybody else. Last year, I did a little bit of DMT and stuff, and... Um, I found like it was a really, as a creative artist, like you know, doing DMT and kind of um, having that connection with the universe and the idea that you know what you learn from that sort of process of going through that um, was very much reflected in this show. Even though I don't talk about that in any way, it was very much about the moment and being in the moment. But also, there's a quantum physics bit in the show that has nothing to do with DMT, but was completely inspired by me taking DMT and all those sort of things. So from psychedelics, in a creative sense, have been important to me, but they're not necessary. I don't do them a lot. Like, I've done, you know, probably three or four times a year, I'll do something psychedelic, and I always get some positive experience out of it. But it's not like, you know, I'm going to go and write a show, so I'm going to go and take mushrooms in the desert or something like that. It doesn't tend to be that sort of experience. I think most comedians could be put on a scale somewhere between people who feel like they have 
worked and earned this career, that they deserve the, all the fun things, all the travel, all the excitement, all the kind of the free fall, the shows, the, the adrenaline, all the rest of it, between whether that's something that they've earned or at the other end of the scale, a lot of comedians who feel that, uh, that by having this life and this career, they are getting away with murder. Do you know what I mean? And I wonder, whereabouts on that scale would you put yourself? I don't mean to imply that you're at either end of it, but what, what would that mean to you? No, no, I absolutely understand what you do, uh, what you're talking about. Um, I, five years ago, five or six years ago, was probably at the, yeah, kind of the peak, I guess, of what, um, you know, things have happened for me in Australia at that point. Like, you know, it was the top that it had ever been. And at that time, when I was kind of doing as well as I've ever done, I kind of stepped away and started to go to America to do shows. And everyone was always a bit like, why are you going to America? Is it about, like, uh, you know, being a big star or anything like that? No, it never really was. I do clubs. I go on the road. Like, I spend six months of my life playing a week in Cleveland and a week in Denver and a week in Alaska or whatever, you know, and that's my life. And I think that that was probably my response to that idea of non-legitimacy. You know, that idea that you're like, suddenly things are going so well for me and everybody thinks I'm fantastic and I know that's not true. Because, you know, of course, like, you know, we know, we're, you know, unless you're that deluded person who thinks you deserve it all. But I think most of us being comedians, um, I don't think Marin said this originally, but I've heard him say it, which is that comedians become comedians because we want to control how people laugh at us. Yes. Which I think is a very good way of looking at it. And so I think that any of that success that I've had, I never really took that seriously, you know. For me, it was always about, are you funny? And so when I went to America, it was about going, well, can I go to a place where no one knows my reputation and no one's seen my TV show or listen to my radio show, whatever, and will I be funny then? Because I needed to know, am I funny in front of people who don't know who I am? And so I guess that side of it, the one that needed to go when all this good stuff is happening, my first instinct was go somewhere where nobody knows about this shit and see if they find you funny. So I guess that's... And why why do you need... To know that, why do you need to be funny? Is it what are you trying to prove something to the? I mean, a common thing might be you're trying to prove something to the kids you went to school with, or you're trying to prove something to your parents, or whatever. What's what's at the root of it? What drives you to go? Well, it seems to be going pretty well here. I'll I'll go somewhere else where it isn't going well and try again and test the. You know, I, I personally not, not, not I don't to suggest want, it's not no, going well in America, but you see what I mean. I don't want to speak for everybody. Like from, I'll only speak from my personal point of view, but. I think it's silly to be doing comedy now for the same reasons that I did it when I started. Like, it's 20 years ago when I started. Why would I be doing it for the same reasons? Part of the reasons I started doing comedy when I was 20 was I got free drinks and I got to meet girls and I got to, you know, hang out with my friends all night and do fuck all. But that's not why I do it now. I do it because I'm part of this amazing community where people push me to do better work and, you know, you have the capacity to create your own work and tour the world. There are reasons that I do it now that are completely different to reasons that I did it three years ago or five years ago or ten years ago or fifteen years ago. I think the most important thing is to always go, how do I feel right now and am I getting out of it what I want to be getting out of it? Am I pushing myself? And it was that moment where things had kind of gone, well, you've conquered here, you can either, you know get a castle in the clouds and hang out with Kanye all day or not really Kanye it's Australia (laughs) Craig McLaughlin or someone (laughs) uh, and or do you go and push yourself because that's always really what it was most interesting to me was take a room where no one knows you and are you funny that's what comedy is can you be funny I always loved the the skill of it I always loved 
I think there's something about comedians. There's, every comedian has a self-deprecating routine about comedy being the hardest job in the world. Everyone has one in their pocket. You know, we always have that thing of like, because people always say, oh, comedy is the hardest job in the world. And we always have something of like, for me, it's like, well, my parents are farmers. That's the hardest. And I have a whole bit about that. But the truth is, if I'm really honest with you, I love that people think that comedy is hard. I love that I have a job that people think is hard. Because it is fucking hard. And you can do it forever and you can never quite get it. And I love that about it. I love the fact that I have done this thing for 20 years. In any other profession, if I got to my level and my level of experience, like you wouldn't want a doctor walking into surgery with the confidence that I have walking on the stage like, <laughs> who the fuck knows how this is going to go? <laughs> like, <laughs> like if a pilot got on and it's like, fuck, we'll wing it. We'll say 30,000 feet, 15,000 feet. Fuck, let's just see how it goes. Like, I like that we work in something that's different every night. I like we work in something that the... Rich Hall always said about comedy that it's a joke-by-joke job application. Like, people laugh like this. Ha, 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 next. Ha, 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 next. I love that about comedy. You don't have time to look back on your successes or bask in what you've done because you're so constantly, desperately thinking about... What's next? What do I say next? Or what do I create next? Or how do I do that? I love that. I love that there's something that you... I love that I have chosen a career and a skill to pursue that I will never master. Like, I will do it for the... There will be moments. We all have them. Those, those comedians that you see in open mics who've been doing it for eight years and you see them be shit all the time, they haven't been shit all the time. There was a moment or two on stage where they just felt it, where they were in that moment, where they were in comedy. And once you've felt that, I mean, it's hard to go back to real life, you know, where you're like, I want to just get closer and closer to that. The more that I can do is like, you know, try to be in that moment. So um, for me, it's that. Like, I love that it's hard. I love that it's difficult. I love that it's a challenge. Every time that I do it, it's going to be hard. I can never walk out there and just go, this is going to go well tonight. That is a brilliant answer, and I'm gonna, I've long been planning to put together a special episode of this show cut from some of the most inspiring bits, and I'm going to call it In Case of Emergency, Break Glass. And it's going to be for comics driving home after a death to listen to. It's going to be stirring music and you saying that and Josie Long talking about joy. And it's just, you know what I mean, just remembering those bits. So thank you for that answer. Um, I just want to, to just to go a step further from that. If, is that, are you prepared? What's the question? Will it? Will it cost you certain things? One might imagine if you are going to be on the road pursuing that, always striving and loving striving, will it cost you relationships? Will it cost you a family? Will it cost you other things that you might want? Um, I mean, it has. Like, there's no doubt about that. And then you have to start thinking. And this is something I think about a lot more at this age of my life rather than, you know, when you're in your 20s or whatever. You start to think about, well... I do I want like, you know, a, like a wife and a family and those sort of things that, you know, like a lifetime on the road. I've been on the road for the last two years. I, I own a house in Sydney, Australia that I've spent two and a half weeks in in the last two years. And um, my ex-girlfriend lives there with our dog and cats. <laughs> um, but I do wonder about, A, do I want that part of my life and am I giving it up just to pursue this thing? And the second thing is I wonder as an artist... One of the things that we do at the heart of us as human beings, if you're going to talk to human beings, most of us have that urge to find someone and to create and to be a family and to be passing on those sort of things. The arrogance that I'm doing something special enough that I should deny at the very heart 
I think I'd be a pretty good dad. Like, I'm, I'm, I'd obviously I'd have my millions of faults like every other person does. But I'm empathetic and I love kids and I, you know, I think that I would have some interesting things to teach them and all those sort of things. And so I do wonder that, like, if, is it selfish for me to just pursue the thing that I love rather than... Like, I mean, the great thing about being a comedian is that it is a very... Like, it's all about me. Like, my job is literally about me. I get to talk about what I think every day and make my own decisions... There is a part of me that thinks if I really want to be able to talk to people and connect with audiences, even take, taking this from a selfish point of view, I guess, is that you've also got to give your life over to somebody who you believe is more important than you. And I think that's what parenthood is. Like that moment where you go, okay, I am not the number yeah. one priority in my like life artistic anymore. challenge is all very well, but if it's yeah. a challenge you're after... Yeah. Why live a life where you don't try that challenge? Right. That, and so I'm not saying I'm just going to have a kid for the show. But <laughs> I'm sure someone has. I'm sure it's been done. Oh, mate, six weeks out of a Melbourne comedy festival, sometimes I'm like, how quick can you adopt? <laughs> Get me a funny baby. <laughs> but are you, but are you, well, you've kind of answered that question, but what are your, like, the, okay, those are the parameters. It's something you think about. Can you see yourself doing it? Is it something you're actively searching for? Or do you recognise that in some way you, you've got to kind of go looking for it? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely. There is a part of it that you're right, that you do have to go looking for it. Um, the, I don't know. The thing that I try to do every single day is go, where are you today? Like, you know, like in your mind, in your, your life and career and all those sort of things. I'm lucky enough, and this might sound like a terribly arrogant, it's not even an arrogant thing to say. It's just a, I like how it is now. Like, I like my life. I didn't even love the show tonight, but I like that I did that show tonight, and I like that I made some mistakes, and I like that I learned some stuff, and I had a pretty good time, and the audience were really fucking nice for a first night, and this is my life. This is my life that I live right now. And I, so I'm really appreciative of that. But I also do want to have the last two years in particular. Um, I got home to the Melbourne Comedy Festival this year, and because I was doing two shows, I didn't really see socially my friends in the way that I ordinarily would because I was busy working and then I suddenly realized I didn't see my friends and now I'm going overseas for another six months and I'm not going to see my friends and these are my friends and then someone dies or someone has a wedding or a birthday and you're not there and you're like hang on like why am I in Alaska or why am I in fucking Chicago where my friends are getting married in Sydney or my you know my mate's funerals in Melbourne or whatever it is you know like so there is definitely a part of my um, – Ted Robinson, who's an Australian television producer, told me very early, early on, he said, you give up a lot when you choose this because entertainers work when other people play and entertainers play when other people sleep and entertainers sleep when other people work. And it's true. The minute you say, I'm going to do this for my job and the minute it becomes successful, basically what you're saying is I can't come to your wedding or your party or your birthday or whatever it is forever. That's basically what you're saying. Unless you are willing to give me more notice than my touring schedule gives me notice. Like my family now and people know. people will not do that. Will they? Well, <laughs> oh, maybe your family My family are now at a point where they know if they want to get me to something, 10 months minimum notice because that's how it's planned out in front. And they will do it. They're like, you know, we're getting married and we've got done it around your touring schedule, <laughs> which is very nice of them to do. But I also understand that that's not how life should be. Not everybody should have to change their schedule to suit me. So... I kind of feel like at the moment I've done a lot of, like it was for me, 
this last sort of five years was definitely for me going away and you know, going through this process and challenging myself and was very much for me. And now that I've kind of done that and it's part of my life and it's part of my world, I think now what I want to do is reincorporate that as a more balanced part of the life and existence that I have. I guess that's what I would say. I mean, England's a good example. Like, I've never had time to pursue here as like a career. Like, but I go to Edinburgh and I love and come and do these shows for two weeks. And there's a point of, like, probably 10 years ago, I would have been like, well, I'm here for two weeks and I better meet some agents and maybe I can get on TV and, you know, like all those sort of things. Whereas now I come here and I go, oh, great, I have two weeks in London. I'll do some shows, you know, they'll go how they go. Stu's invited me on his podcast. That'll be a fun night out, you know, like, and that's pretty much how I, like, you know, approach these things now, which is very different to how I would have used to. And I think that that's how... I will try to incorporate all those things back into my life. I'd like, I have to go back this year. They gave me a year off my television show last year, which was very nice of them to do, uh, but was on the agreement that I would go back this year and do another season. So that will be when I go back in August after I, I do a bit more American touring and I'll go to Montreal and then basically I'll be back in Australia for like four months doing the television show. And that's essentially after two years me going back to what everybody else considers to be my real life. And so then I will, I guess, work out how much of what I've learnt in the last two years and how much I've learnt about myself that I then reincorporate into my, you know, my old life. I mean, that'll be interesting in itself because you hope that you're not going to be that person, like, you know, when you go to a school reunion where you suddenly just become the person you were at high school for that night. I don't want to be that. Yeah. I hope that I take the things that I've learnt through all this experience back in and I'm able to incorporate them into my life. We, I've got so much other things that I'd like, so, so much things I'd like to, uh, have we run out of time? I'd like to talk to you about. We have kind of run out of time. Do you want um, to do a fast round? Can we, let's do a, <laughs> have we got a, have we got any audience questions and we'll do a fast round with some audience questions. Can uh, you imagine doing a completely improvised show? I believe you have, Will. I have. Um, I do a show at home called What You Talking About, Will? Um, which is a completely improvised show. So in my last DVD, Illuminati, we put out actually, I do a week at the Sydney Comedy Store, every night completely improvised, and we filmed them. And we put out one of those episodes as like just a bonus on the DVD, but it's completely improvised from start to finish. It's my favourite thing to do. If I could only do that forever, it would be my favourite thing to do. Do you play the audiences differently? That's a great question. I'm an idiot. I didn't think of that. Um, do you play the audiences differently in countries where you're famous uh, or not famous? I, I try not to, but, I mean, obviously, naturally, there is, like, a, you can get away with more. You can kind of play off things that people, you know, know about you or, like, you know, sense about you. It's very easy to shorthand things. Do you ever overestimate your fame in front of an audience and try getting away with something and going, oh, maybe these, don't go, these guys don't actually know? Um, no. No. <laughs> I don't, I'm very famous. <laughs> <laughs> that was a superb answer. Thank you. We're talking about flow and creativity and being in the moment in terms of a lot of your creativity. How does that relationship with creativity tally when you are writing a show? Uh, podcasts and set lists have taught me a lot. Uh, set lists taught me uh, that very thing that we talked about earlier, which is like just say a premise and then justify it. Yep. And you can be funny. And that taught me the idea that you don't have to think of a joke as a linear thing. This is where I'll go from this. Think of the thing and then justify it, which means that you can always, you can talk about a topic that other people are talking about, but you're going to talk about it in your own way. Yes, because you're not doing the math 
maths of it. You're not right. doing the science of the subject. A lot You're of the time when the, people the think emotional. someone's stealing a joke, it's just common thought because the person has gone to the exact area that anyone would go to if they were logically thinking through that joke. I love the idea of taking a leap that's to the side and then justifying that and then you can talk about it in a new way. The podcast uh, he mentioned as an idea of that's been the biggest thing for me, which is that idea that you can just explore a story for like I mean I will tell uh, you know there's, there's a story in the show that will go for four minutes but you can go and listen to the podcast and hear the other two hours of the things that happened on that trip and whatever and I think that A that gives people to listen to the podcast when they come and see the show it's not like they're seeing material they've heard before they're seeing a version of a story that they've got like two hours of like background and yeah. extra information on which gives it a depth that like for them you know, gives them more but also for me gives me that idea to explore an idea for an hour and then go, but this is my four-minute piece that, like, you know, is, is what I want to yes. talk about. I have a final, a final question to round things off, which is uh, sort of jumping off that one. Um, I know you have two podcasts of your own. I've listened to both, Willosophy and uh, Tofop. Tofop, Tofop? Tofop, yep. T-O-F-O-P. If we knew it was going to be popular, we would have come up with a better name. 30-odd footer pod. It's named after Russell Crowe's band. I thought so. Yeah, okay, great. The greatest moment in the history of the podcast was when on predictive search on Google, if you put T-O-F-O, it comes up my podcast, not Russell Crowe's band. Yes, tremendous. So here's the question. Given that you are, you've got two podcasts, you've got a TV show, at least your own show, you've got other appearances and other things, you've got touring, you've got writing a show, you've got travelling, how do you fit it all in? I'm going mental. This week, today in particular, I'm going absolutely mental trying to put together this show, booking people for the podcast, just doing, have you got any kind of like productivity tips? How do you oh, get shit done? No. No, dear God, no. I'm terrible. No, you've got to have something. Oh, no. Have you got I... people helping you? What is it? No. No one helps me. Like that. Oh, well, not no one helps me, but like with the podcast and stuff, I do it all myself. I love that I do it all myself, which the audience hate because it's terribly recorded and I lose <laughs> episodes and all those sort of things. But oh, forget to be recorded. Yeah, there's, uh, the, the there's classic. that thing where I love like being practically being able to create something and put it out there for no other reason. The podcast exists for no reason. That's the thing I love it about it the most. This thing tonight existed because I do stand-up comedy as a living and they're paying me to be here and I'm doing the shows and all those sort of things. The podcast, I've done over 500 hours of like free stuff for no reason. It's, there's no career plan behind it. It's creation for the pure sake of creation. That's what drives me to do it. I put it out because I talk to these wonderful people who I think are amazing and then I want people to hear their stories or put it out there. I think that the, the easiest thing to get you to work hard is just do things that you like doing and then you will just keep doing them. Oh, it's I'm going the... to I'm gonna have to learn to enjoy this somehow. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I guess that's it. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking the brilliant Will Anderson. <laughs> so that was will anderson thank you so much to him for coming along remember tweet him at will underscore anderson or go to willanderson.com.au his other podcasts are called willosophy and tofop check out his brilliant artwork as well he's obviously in cahoots with some fantastic comic book artist if anyone knows who that is please chuck a tweet at me and i will retweet their name because uh, they do all of will's uh, posters and they're, they're terrific Remember, Adam Buxton, on the 7th of July, use the discount code FAF at SohoTheatre.com. 
Keep donating, keep supporting the show, rate me on iTunes if you fancy it, and tell a friend about this thing. That's all the chat for now. Back next week with the fantastic Ian Stone. And if you're in Durham this week, uh, I'm going to interview Gavin Webster. Now, that might be happening live, it might not be, and there is no time to tell you. There's no time to check before it happens, but you can look forward to uh, an interview with fantastic Geordie comic Gav Webster coming up very soon. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.